Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 and 19. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. I'm Brian Bales. And I'm Jeremy Hodges. And we'd like to invite you to open up your Bible and... Give me a second here. And we'd like to talk... And we'd like to talk with you about the Bible today. Specifically, we want to discuss with you Exodus chapters 33 and 34. Walking Through the Book is all about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading. We want to demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible. And we want to emphasize what the text says, no more and no less. Before we start, we do want to let you know how to get in touch with us. You can find us on Facebook if you search at Walking Through the Book. You can email us also, walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com is that email. Bryant, Jeremy, you guys doing okay? Hmm. Yeah, doing doing really, really well. Yeah, I'm very excited for our study today and just been very encouraged lately. So doing very well. Absolutely. I'm excited to do this. This is one of my uh, favorite sections of scripture. So studying this day yeah. has been very, uh, very interesting and exciting for me too. Very good. Um, Jeremy, do you want to let everybody know kind of uh, what you do and how to get in touch with you? Well, uh uh, I'm allowed to preach the gospel here in the what we call the DMV, which would be the the district of Maryland and Virginia. So around DC, I am on the Maryland side. Uh, the congregation I work with is called the Wildercroft Church of Christ, and you can find us at wildercroftcoc.org. Yeah, so uh, I'm also working as an evangelist in, uh, in Savannah, Georgia, on the east side of the country as well here. Um, our website is uh, strivingforthefaith.org, and we have a Facebook page too if you'd like to uh, see our address there, or information about the congregation. And um, the flow of the program is something that we try to keep pretty simple and, and just rooted in in scripture. So we, we always start reading the text all the way through. And so, like was already said, we're going to be looking at uh, Exodus 33 and 34 today. And after reading it, we start by just looking at some initial observations of some things that are uh, just in those chapters specifically that um, just seems important or just things that maybe we didn't notice as much as uh, when we did the reading. Uh, And after we walk through some initial observations, we do uh, a section based in themes that we see in the text. So that would be um, connections that we see that kind of go everywhere else in scripture. So maybe things that go back to Genesis or relate to the greater narrative in Exodus, uh, things that might relate further down the line in the uh, years of the Old Testament, 
or even related to Christ in the church. Um, and then we always try to finish the program trying to look at some uh, applications that can be made. And that's more, how can we, how can we apply the things that we've been reading from the text in a practical way? Exodus 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the Tabernacle of Meeting. It came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the Tabernacle of Meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the Tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door, and watched Moses until he had gone to the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend and he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you. So that I may find favor in your sight, consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. 
For how can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now Yahweh said to Moses, Cut for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the mountain to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as Yahweh commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low to the earth and worship. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. Before all your people, I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice and you might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. 
the first offspring from every womb belongs to me, and all your male livestock, the first offspring from the cattle and sheep. You shall redeem with a lamb the first offspring from a donkey, and if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. You shall redeem all the firstborn of your sons. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest, you shall rest. You shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks, that is, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year, all your males are to appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will drive out the nations before you and enlarge your borders, and no man shall covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before the Lord your God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover to be left over until morning. You shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near. And he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. So I, I misread, or I, I almost misread or did misread. I'm going to edit it out either way. Uh, verse 4 in chapter 33. Okay. To, uh, you know, when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his garments. I thought that was what it said originally. I, was uh, just like, I see, I see. Uh, oh, so. <laughs> but then, like, when you look at, and no one put on his ornaments, it's like, uh, you know, they they like, did they want to put on their ornaments? What's going on? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, obviously verse five kind of explains that a little bit more, but still it's like, kind of like what's, you know, is that a show of mourning to not put on your ornaments? What are we talking about there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely think it was. I mean, mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so you and I don't wear a ton of jewelry as part of our kind of, uh, post Puritan American heritage, but 
women still wear jewelry. And you know the difference between a woman who's got her jewelry on ready to go somewhere and a woman who does not. I mean, there is a difference in the way that she appears and feels. Um, you, I mean, I guys are a little bit less inclined to wear fancier things. Uh, again, part of our culture. But in other cultures, you know the difference between someone who is wearing very plain clothes versus something that's very more flashy that has like bangles and stuff on it. So I think in this case, the putting on the ornaments is not wearing nice stuff, not wearing things that are flashy and pretty. Yeah. I think it shows how like their, their form had changed so much since they came out of Egypt. You know, they were a slave people before they looted Egypt, their silver and gold. You know, I just imagine they were so proud of these rich things that they now had. You know, you imagine that since the day they came out of Egypt, they were wearing gold, gold rings, gold earrings, well, it gold necklaces, it, you know. It mentions it several times. I mean, yeah, they, they right. even took yeah. out they even took out the gold earrings uh, off their their sons and daughters right. and to make the to make the the molten calf. So, right. And you imagine all the stuff they had still that would be used for the gold of the tabernacle. You know, so I just sure. I just imagine the amount of gold they had was probably pretty incredible. Absolutely. I, I think, you, I think you're right though, to connect it to this being a slate, a slate people though. I don't know that I would have thought about that necessarily, but that makes a, a ton of sense that mm-hmm. they had been slave people. They came out rich from Egypt. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to wear my bling. Look at this right. necklace I got. This thing is fat. Yeah. And uh, you know, one other thing I wanted to ask about too, when Moses face is shining, I know this is getting into theme a little bit, but I don't expect uh, we're really going to be theme section. You gotta wait. No. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm I, I don't think we're going to talk about this very much. Uh, I just wanted to pose just a quick question. His face shining. Um, I mean, is that, is that comparable to the resurrected body that God is promising to uh, his faithful in first Corinthians 15? I I think it's more related to the fact that God's glory uh, is reflected off of Moses because of his close exposure. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would connect it to resurrected body necessarily. Although the Mount, Trans- Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus shines. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's, that's mm-hmm. you know, yeah, yeah. That, that that's why I brought it up. It's like you know, there's no, there's no way to answer that question really. I just wow. you know, I thought it was interesting. It is interesting. It's totally interesting. But Jesus in his resurrected body doesn't shine all the time either. You know, with the putting off of ornaments earlier, I do think it's really significant that the people did go into mourning. You know, at this word, you know, it doesn't seem sure. like in Exodus 32. You know, like the Levites had gone through the camp, you know, killing 3000 people. Moses made them drink the powder of the calf that they had made, you know, and he says, you've committed this great sin. Yeah. So it's like, they didn't go into mourning with all that time, but now finally, you know, like they're legitimately heartbroken, you know, and it just seems like the, the, the narrative just pauses so much here like everything just slows yeah. down so much yeah yeah no it's it's a big deal i mean he's he's saying that he's not going to go up with them in the way in your midst mm-hmm. the question is if they had been faithful if it had not done that with the with the calves 
would it literally have been something where they're physically going up to Canaan and also there's the presence of God literally moving among them? I mean, that's my question there. And I know that's speculation, but it's like, it's almost like, you know, I'll not go up in your midst lest I consume you on the way. And it's not because it's not even necessarily because they can't see his glory and live in, in that particular verse, the verse that, you know, the text says there that, you know, you're a stiff neck people. That's the problem here. Uh-huh. Your behavior is keeping this from being a closer relationship. Yes, it is. That's, that's what I get from that. So absolutely what is going on here. And so he wants to see, he wants to see God in a, in a, in a, in a way that is different than his presence moving along with people. He wants to mm. see God and God, uh, I don't want to get blasphemous with this, but it, it, I, I love the fact that God says, uh, you can see the back of me, but you can't see anything else. And I don't mm. understand the extent of that, but there's the, there is, there's an almost, int- almost a humorous element to that. Because when we show our back to people, mm. it is generally a sign of, I don't know, some opprobrium a part of that, you know, uh, mm-hmm, young people mm-hmm. who are being gross, show their backside to people as a sign of disgrace. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I kind of, I don't know how to, I don't know how to parse all of that for this particular instance, but I don't think that God is being gross with Moses, but the backside is a whole lot less glorious than the, than, than the face. And I think mm-hmm. he demonstrates that through what he says you can see. That's the closest you're going to get, buddy. I mean, he honors the request-ish, but there's a there's kind of a caveat with that. Mm-hmm. But the the thing that really blows my mind is that when he what he does show is not just a physical figure, because the glory that Moses is able to understand is all wrapped up in God's name and his character. Yeah. Yep. 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 You, I yeah, mean, you, and, I are, you and I are such small one dimensional beings by comparison. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have a physical presence, but our physical presence is not the exact same thing as our being, our nature, our name, our character, with God, they're all connected. Yeah, I think yeah, there, I think there is a perfected uh, identity that we like to think of ourselves as that doesn't always, you know, match with the physical aspect of it too. As I as um, I attain forty years old, I feel that real big. <laughs> and uh, you know the way that you view yourself. I mean, of course, but but at the same time, it's like. <clears throat> this the spiritual reality and again this gets into some other things the spiritual reality of our souls does not necessarily coincide with the appearance of us you know I, this is this might be silly and i no, might cut it out no, it's not. but uh but well i mean you know in 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 star wars as i was growing up you know, when you, you look at like sith lords they're always like disfigured in their appearance and messed up and the thought is, well, they've used so much dark side energy. They're just, you know, they're just messed up, man. And, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But that's not, that's not reality. That's not how it really 
works. Um, and, and, and consequently with God, it's a sense where anything, anything physical that he could show us, you know, and and this is, this is why I tell people it doesn't matter what Jesus looked like. Right. It, It doesn't matter. Right. We we could look at the Catholic, uh, representation of him. Okay. Probably not accurate. Okay. But then also, what was it? What, the the thing that was released back in the aughts of uh, this picture of Jesus as this like befuddled, confused Jewish man with a big nose. Uh, it's probably not what he looked like either. Yeah. You know, so it, who cares? The point about Jesus is not about what he looked like. The point about what Jesus is who he is. And, and it's the same thing with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so glad yeah, you I- on that. Can, you're quoting Jewish, me on that? Yeah, the confused, befuddled man, Jewish man with a big nose. And there, man. Honestly, it was I mean, so you, you've seen that photo, right? He I looks, exactly he looks like about. he's stupid. No, you, you, you painted the picture in my head. It was beautiful. <laughs> I, I got a, I got a pretty quick picture as well. <laughs> oh man, that was rough. That was hilarious. Man, I mean, so what do you guys before before all of this happened with um? you know, Moses seeing God's back, you know, Moses having this tent outside the camp where he oh, would yeah, go. That's so cool. Yeah. Oh, that is man. extremely fascinating. Like what the tent of meeting. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. The, the tent that's out there and like Joshua stays there. Moses speaks to God face to face, you know, like a friend, you know, and I think the emphasis on talking face to face is interesting when later he says he can't see his face. Just all of that is amazing. You know, the pillar of the cloud stands at the entrance and the people would worship when they saw Moses going out there. Uh, I, I think really not to say that, not to say this is what the text is literally saying, but I, I take that more as this is how people perceived Moses and God's relationship to be. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they saw this happen. They saw him go in there and Joshua go in there. So they're closer to God. Yeah. But very we're intimate. Not. Yeah. And, 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 there's a distinction made there. And I think um, this, this kind of prefigures the tabernacle because later on right, the tabernacle is, is referred to as the tent of meeting. But yeah, even yep, before there was a yep. tabernacle, look, you people are gross and I can't be over there. I'll talk to Moses and he'll talk to you people, but I'm not getting near you. You guys are, mm. you guys are gross. That's it. Yeah. That really helps to distinguish God's holiness in a very good way. You know, at the same time, it also is a demonstration of his desire to be close to the people in yes, the way that yeah. are appropriate. Yeah, as close as possible. Yep. And it just there's such a there's such a matching here, you know, because obviously throughout Exodus, the the goal is that God is trying to get as close as possible. And now Moses, it's like he gets it, you know, like yeah. he's he's the leader of the people. He speaks to God in the special tent outside the camp, but it's still not satisfying enough, you know. It's like I want to know God perfectly, you know, and Moses recognizes like, God, you know, me, you know, me perfectly, you know, me by name, but I, I, I don't know you like, you know, me. And I, I just think that's just an incredible demonstration of how it's almost like the things are just aligning so perfectly between the heart of God and the heart of Moses here. And he, he wants that relationship. He, yeah. he, yeah. you know, desires that relationship. Yeah. And, it's, and that's it's interesting. Kind of- I'm sorry, go ahead, uh, Steve. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that it's like, it. it's just so interesting how Moses is so devastated, 
you know, when he says, you know, I'll put an angel to lead you, but not me, you know, and Moses says that's useless, you know, just if that's, what's going to happen, that, that, that can't be what happens. You have to go with us. We're your people that, and there's just, I noticed as we were reading, there's, there's an emphasis over and over and over again of Moses at every phase of these two chapters, he's continuously begging God, you know, be with us, go with us. You have to be with us. And then in 34 verse nine, you know, when he's, when he finally says, you know, be with us, even though we're obstinate, you know, and um, <laughs> where, where was it where he said um, a little bit earlier, he said, um, oh, I just, I just lost my mind. He says something really similar. Um, he said, consider that we are your people. There it is. Uh, yes. 3313. Consider yeah. too that this nation is your people. I love that. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's really this begging for God's presence to be with them, despite what he knows they are. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. I, one of yeah. the things, one of the things I, I, that I, there are a couple of Bible scholars that have really made a big deal about uh, 34, five through eight. And I I think that there is, I don't know how I didn't know about this section until I was an adult. It makes no sense to me how in the world I, I did not understand mm-hmm. 34, five through eight or did not know it was there, but it's one of the most significant portions in all of Exodus, man. Yeah. Yep. And, and the, much phrase, the D section, it is, it really is. And, and it gets quoted more than any other part of Exodus. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. all over. Now again, this mm-hmm. gets into the themes, and we'll talk about that a, a little bit more. But it's quoted all over the place. So the qualities that God uses to describe His character in this place are foundational to understanding His very being. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And right. it helps us to, helps us to understand that, like He, this is the way He has always been. This is the way He will always be. There is not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. Amen. Mm -hmm. And secondarily, it helps us to understand exactly what's going on in the rest of the section, which Mm. is what we're talking about, God's presence maintaining with his people, despite him knowing exactly Mm. who and what they are. Mm. And so he is compassionate. He is gracious. He is forgiving. Yet he also is just. And he's Mm -hmm. the only Mm -hmm. being who can perfectly balance those two things. Yeah. Yep. Because justice and mercy are very difficult for human beings to balance. Either we want too much justice or we want too much mercy. Yeah. Only God is in a place to be in that perfect position where he can do both and to do it with perfection. And yeah. that's, what's at the, that's what's at the heart of this idea that he talks about, this, mm-hmm. idea, this mm-hmm. idea of loving kindness or chesed, this, 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 this covenant loyalty that he maintains with his people. And so the, the description he uses about himself, I think, is the core of all of the other talk that comes up around it, which is, I can't be close to those people, but I'm going to have the tent of meeting so I can talk to Moses to talk to the people. Yeah. Um, Lord, we, you know how we are. We're terrible. And we're also asking you to go with us. Uh, we know that we have sinned. We're asking for your forgiveness. And if you don't forgive them, they blot me out of your book. Um, I'm going to... I'm going to forgive who I forgive and I'm going to be gracious to who I'm gracious. All of those things are hard to balance at the same time mm-hmm. until we come to this description of who he is. And that helps mm-hmm. us to get 
oh, that's why those seemingly contradictory things can exist all at one time. Yeah. God's very character maintains the tension. Mm. Yeah. It's Behold a good the goodness and severity of God. Amen. Absolutely. Yep. I think that's, for my part, I think that's kind of what Paul is referencing. I think this section in God's description of his character is what Paul is alluding to when he says that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it uh, seems like in 33, seven, you know, like it really demands the truth of eternal judgment and eternal life as well, you know, um, because if he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, uh, you know, I mean, it seems like the guilty go unpunished all the time, always right, in a sense, in right. you know, Right. And it's just the the balance of temporal existence with eternal existence is, I think, reconciled here in these verses. You know, like temporal existence is the way that God is able to extend this compassion and mercy and grace. But but the guilty will still by no means be left unpunished. I mean, I think this is this is this might get a little crazy, but. You know, time sometimes seems like it's a it's a pool that's moving in one direction, but God can wade through that pool wherever He wants. And whereas to us, it just seems like a constant flowing stream that's going, you know, slowly. Uh, but God can look down and see, okay, this is where it seems like it's going. Um, that that's just you know, again, that's just kind of how I look at that. But I mean, that's I think that's. Precisely, I think what you said is precisely true, Brian. I mean, he can see past the things that we view as complete injustices, and uh, again, that's that's part of the problem with the later biblical writers, right? You know, why why do you allow the wicked to prosper? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, okay, and and part of this is because we are so limited. I talked about this being very right. one dimensional right. by comparison. Right. We're even one dimensional in how we move through time. You know, right. we, mm-hmm. we, we can't even see past the next few minutes. Mm-hmm. And we think that everything is settled only because it's behind us. Right. And right, God right, functions right. outside of time completely. And the ability for him to function outside of the bounds of time and to be interfering with things that go on in time by his choosing makes it so that our understanding of him is paltry. Right. So I want to notice as well, uh, the the covenant that's being established here, and yeah. I'm going to steal. You know, I'm going to steal from Tom Holly. Uh, I know y'all have heard this before, but I like his definition of a covenant as uh, an agreement made with commitment and sustained with memory. Um, I think a lot of the a lot of the definitions of covenant is contract or some sort of stipulation. I don't think that really. Uh, matches up to what we see in scripture. And I think that definition works a lot better. It's an agreement made with commitment and sustained with memory. Um, God is going to remember this covenant. And uh, at this moment, he is, uh, he's saying in verse 12, take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You know, watch yourself, make sure you don't enter into any other covenants. And what's interesting is this term goes back to uh, Noah, right? I mean, 
when when he came out of the flood and everything, God made a covenant between him and man. Now, I would say technically that that there was a covenant beforehand between God and Adam, but uh, this was sort of a renewed covenant with mankind. And now here you have a specific covenant being made with this specific nation, uh, and and so that's kind of it, it's it's good for us to see that God takes His covenant seriously. It's interesting well, that like. Go ahead, Jeremy. No, 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 you finish. I was going to quickly mention here that it seems like everything that God mentions, it's interesting that he doesn't bring up any of the relational um, commands that he had given before, you know, like don't covet your neighbor's wife or possessions, whatever, you know, don't, don't murder, don't commit adultery. You know, these are all things that relate to remembering God. Uh, and just kind of interesting again with like the, the commitment sustained by memory. It's almost like God is renewing these things. Like these things don't forget me, you know, remember right. me. So, and I think it's interesting that he even goes back to some of the things that he was talking about in Exodus, uh, chapter 13, right, right. after the, yeah. the, the, right after the feast of unleavened bread that would follow right. Passover, right. he talked about the fact that your firstborn children belong to me mm-hmm. and if you mm-hmm. want them you got to pay for them. You redeem the firstborn from me. Now, later mm-hmm. on, he's not, he's not going to rescind this. He's going to, he's going to qualify that because in numbers, he says, I'm going to take the tribe of Levi um, in exchange for your firstborn. So he mm-hmm. does, he buy, he, he buys their firstborn himself through the tribe of Levi. It's, it's interesting that he makes that work out. Um, but they were to always remember that the firstborn of their children had a special relationship with God because of what he did for them in Egypt. I just, uh, it's, it's a very, it is a very interesting kind of um, quality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All that opened the womb are mine. Yep. So he, he's talking about mammals there (laughs) and, uh, and, and, you know, again, a statement here concerning the Sabbath, and yeah. and what that what that means you know moving forward is going to be pretty pretty massive um but i also love verse 24 i will cast out the nations before you mm-hmm. and enlarge your borders you know that if 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 they could just listen to that and and say okay you know that's that's what that's what we believe because mm-hmm. we're going to find later on that Joshua believes it Caleb believes it Moses mm-hmm. believed it but it uh, seems like Joshua and Caleb were the only ones that ended up really believing that mm, along with mm-hmm. Moses. Yeah. And what a shame when, you know, when somebody's working so hard to fulfill their part of a covenant like this, you know, like in a marriage, like, you know, if my wife was working so hard to be forgiving towards me and she was just pouring herself sacrificially into making the relationship work. But then at every turn I'm being lazy, you know, I'm insulting her. I'm treating her poorly. You know, I'm, I'm contributing nothing to the relationship. I mean, what a shame, you know, I've seen some relationships like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's such a shame, you know, and I've, and, and I think that's just the story of the old Testament, you know, and what a shame that God is so clear that, you know, he's trying to bless them. He's trying to do them good, you know? Well, I mean, I don't think by the time we get to Hosea, we should not be shocked by right. the, by the the parable of a love story 
mm-hmm. with an yeah. unfaithful bride. That should right. that should right. not have slapped us in the face because we've right. seen how this has worked out. Yep. I love I love how it says very specifically. Uh, and he says, "If you don't go with us, how are we going to be distinct?" Uh, we think about yeah. the concept so of good. holiness. Holiness is not just rightness or or right. or, or righteousness. Holiness is separateness. Um, and and the set-apartedness that God maintains, He allows us to be set apart. We are not set apart by our own. We are not holy on our own. Right. That's why uh, He specifically says in in Isaiah, He says, "I really d- I hate when you people are are gross." and idolaters and get involved with unclean things. And yet you tell other people, stay away from me. I'm, I'm holier than you are because that's, that's disgusting. Stop that. Mm -hmm. I'm what makes you holy. You are not holy on your own. You can't be. And Moses gets at that in this place because he says, we are only separate from all the nations on the earth because you are with us. Mm -hmm. And if you don't go with us, we're not holy. So I've noticed that, uh, Exodus seems like it focuses as a theme in some ways on the name of God, um, which comes to a climax here. And the name, you know, not just being like, you know, a word that is associated with his name, but who he is. So you're talking about sort of the buildup from like three and then six. Yeah, no, I I hear you on that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So like Moses back in Exodus uh, chapter three you know, verse 13 says, well, what am I going to tell the people is the name of this God who's sending me? And God says, I am who I am. Uh, It seems like that's God's way of saying, you know, I'll define myself. Um, Chapter five, verse two, you know, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him, Mm -hmm. uh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. And, you know, it continues um, on in chapter nine, verse 16. Uh, God says, but indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain. That's Pharaoh in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. So uh, chapter um, 20, verse uh, well, yeah. chapter. Yeah, Go ahead, Jerry. No, I was going to say in chapter 20. I mean, that's like one of the foundational things about the law is his name. And, exactly. Right. And if you're not if you're not paying attention to the way that that has been developed throughout the book so far. Right, right, right. I think there's a real big misunderstanding that comes from what that command is truly communicating. Yes. Or yes, even yes, why yes. it's important. Because, right. yep. I mean, our atheist friends will take that verse out of context and say, well, you know, what a what a petty and low thing that he would not want them to say his name wrongly. I mean... Uh, you know, and they'll they'll say this is very childish and things like that. It was like, well, if you haven't been paying attention, you don't understand how closely his nature and character is connected to that name, and further, the nature and connect the nature and character that he is going to expect out of them. Right. Yeah. Yep. Now that gets into Leviticus eighteen and nineteen too, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because he says, you know this is my name and you're going to be like me. Yeah. And so at the end of all of those laws, he says, I am the Lord or I am Yahweh. Yep. That's, yep. that's why, because this is me and you're going to be like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think you see that with uh, in John 17. Uh, just as mm-hmm. like the way that, you know, that that connects forward. Um, and, you know, how it's like you were saying, you know, God's name is, it's, it's, it's who he is. It's his character. It's, it's how we respect his character, how we conform to his character. Uh, John 17, six, um, verse six, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men who you, whom you gave me out of the world. Uh, so you have to think like when he says I've manifested your name, does he mean that he was just going around telling people, you know, Hey, you know, God is, you know, the Lord, you know, God, make sure you, you know, get his name right. But no, he was <laughs> showing his character. He was showing it perfectly. Mm-hmm. He was, he was teaching people that they needed to conform to the character of God. So, you know, Jesus fulfilled also, as we've talked about, you know, just recently in the podcast, God in Exodus, Exodus is one of the most, um, diverse books of the Bible, I think, just all the different things that God does in Exodus. But God in Exodus is setting a ex- an expectation, what, what to expect from God, who do we expect God to be toward us. And Jesus in his ministry, in a personal form and in, 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 a, in a human life, fulfilled every component of what Exodus leads us to expect from who God is. And we see that lived out in Jesus's life. So as Jesus lives out the character of God, he also then fulfills the name of God. And I think John sort of tells us that that's going to be happening Mm. in the beginning when he says, no man has ever seen God except Mm. for the one who is uh, in his presence. So good. I mean, mean, it's like he's just telling us what's going on. Yeah. Yep. It does bleed over into any mention of for your name's sake or for the sake of the name of the Mm. Lord. Absolutely. It kind of brings another dimension to that when, you know, for example, I'm looking at Psalm 143, yeah. verse 11, revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake, for your mm-hmm. righteousness' mm-hmm. sake, bring my soul out of trouble. Yeah. Ezekiel 36, I'm not going to do this for the sake, for your sake, but for the sake of my name. Right. Uh, uh, that is, and of course, Ezekiel 36 is, is, is sort of obliquely referenced in John 3. So there's that John connection again. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot there. Yeah. Yep. Yep. John John is also the book where he straight up drops the I am statement mm-hmm. at, the, at mm-hmm. the end of mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. John 5 and, and their faces melt. But yeah. uh, the I am statements are all throughout John. Right. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot there. I'm, 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 I'm tracking you on that one, Brian. Yeah. And, and then in ahead, connection, Steve. well, I mean, if, if you had more to say on that, Brian, go ahead. Just that uh, in the beginning of John as well. Um, I gotta turn back there. It's in John chapter one in the very beginning in verse, uh, Mm -hmm. 14. Uh, it's kind of interesting, you know, Moses was allowed to see God's back and like, you know, a base description of God's character, you know, really summarized. And John says, you know, we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. You know, and then he says, you know, the law was given through Moses, you know, just like Second right. Corinthians 3 right. mentions. Yeah, I mean, you could you could see some of God through the law, but ultimately all the glory of God is epitomized in Christ. And John says, you know, we saw that glory. So like what you were saying, Jeremy, with these I am statements in, in John's gospel, 
he's really portraying Jesus as the most vivid, clear, and direct representation of this glory that Moses just saw a glimpse of. Absolutely. And and you, you brought up the 2 Corinthians 3 thing, which, again, references something very particular mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. the text that we were looking at. Uh, the idea that Moses, by his exposure to God's presence as closely mm-hmm. as a human being could stand it, began to reflect that mm-hmm. and that they were able to see that. Now, of course, uh, Paul makes a very kind of interesting point with that in 2 Corinthians 3, saying uh, that there was a veil that Moses would use mm-hmm. so that he was not, so that the people didn't have to see that much of God's glory, even reflecting off of Moses. Right. And then he says, well, we do that very boldly. He has, and we don't do it with a veil. We say it exactly as it is. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that thematic element continues on much later. Yeah. Yep. And I, I was going to mention that effect on Moses face concerning that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, and I think I mentioned that, you know, Moses going into the tent of meeting on, I think I commented on how cool that is because it is cool. It is. Um, but, uh, I, I think there's something that we want to keep in mind. Uh, and, and maybe this is a bit of application too, that, uh, that basically, um, when later on, when the rebellion of Korah happens, what's the criticism? You take too much upon you, yeah. And you know, all the people are 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 you know special more or less. Um, but then, you know, in a sense, you could say that that this special relationship does create a possibility for others to be jealous or envious of it. Well, I mean, that's, um, what, that's what the criticism yeah. is against Aaron and Miriam, too. Mm. Right. That is, they decide that they can slander Moses, and God gets upset about them slandering Moses. Right. Now, again, we don't know the entirety of the reason for that, but in, in Numbers 12, he specifically says that, look, if there's a prophet, I make myself known in a vision. Mm. speak to him in a dream. Mm. He says, not so with Moses. He is faithful in all my household. Now, of course, that's referenced by the Hebrew writer. He says, with him, I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. Mm. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Mm. And so this, this really impactful statement that God says about his relationship with Moses uh, is the reason that Aaron and Miriam were not allowed to speak about him mm. in very flippant ways. Mm-hmm. Now, Korah, of course, is a whole lot more insulting. Uh, Korah completely ignores the position of Moses by trying to say we're all holy. You know, there's no, there's no like striations of holy. God says there is. Didn't um, and didn't the situation with Korah happen after Miriam and Aaron had uh, spoken against Moses? I believe that sounds correct. I'd have to look at the timeline on that. Yeah, I, I should know that off the top of my head, but you can edit out that we didn't know. <laughs> yeah, because I think it in numbers here is perfect. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. in numbers yeah, that, sixteen. That's right. That happened fairly early in numbers, and then the Korah happened later. Yeah, it's just a couple of chapters because it's 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 numbers twelve versus number sixteen. So good call on that, Brian. I don't know that I would have put that together. 
Yeah, because the, the thing is, like, that makes it worse then because then the Korra <laughs> rebellion would have been with the knowledge of what happened to Miriam, you know? Yikes. Yeah, because it re- really is a rebellion against God when you get down to it. it and and, and it, it ties into what Jesus says. Whoever rejects the one I've sent rejects mm, me. Right. Yeah. And when he rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. Right. Right. Uh, so there's a chain there that Moses has, you know, he's in the middle of all this. Yeah. Um, and so, I, you know, and, and I think there's more to say there about application as well, because, you know, yeah, there, there's, there's just something to be said there, but um, yeah, the you know, verse two, I will send my angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and so on and so forth. Uh, that links up to, uh, the book of Joshua, right? Yeah, and Joshua five. Joshua's mm-hmm. about to get going, and here's here's this angel, and I mean, which is such an epic scene because mm. uh, <laughs> it's like you know, hey, I'm I'm the servant of God, I'm ready to go here, and uh, you know, but but again, it's it's just a sense where God, what God is saying is true, and it's gonna gonna continue. You talked about it being epic. I love I love this this captain of the host of Yahweh. Yeah, and his and his comment. He goes. Are you with us or with the enemy? And he's like, no, I'm with God. Yeah. What a one lighter. Yeah. It's like, I just imagine Joshua got goosebumps, you know, like, oh, whoa, I spoke wrong. Oof. He tells him, dude, take off your shoes. That's, that's, I mean, so he he straight up references the burning bush. Yeah. In Joshua's face. That's like, whoa. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Which is weird because he doesn't come up a lot. Mm. So he's there and Joshua speaks, speaks to him. And that's kind of the last we see of him. Mm. I mean, I don't, I don't read about this particular, this particular captain. It reminds us that there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we don't understand completely. Right. Right. Yeah. I guess you could kind of say that we might see glimpses of that in in Daniel, when Daniel talks about the princes over the armies, but we, I mean, that, it's not spoken of a whole lot more. Mm. All we know is that they win and they win handily when they are on God's side throughout the right. book of Joshua. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I, I thought on that, you know, when God says, you know, my angel will go with you, but not me initially here before Moses, you know, mm-hmm. intercedes mm-hmm. once again, it seems like God in, 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 in a way is saying, you know, I'll still fulfill the most basic part of my promises to Abraham, but because of your sin, like forget the tabernacle, you know, like I can't be among you in the way that I was planning. This is, things are going to have to change. Moses intercedes. And then in the rest of Exodus, the tabernacle ends up being built. Um, and I just think it's, it's, it's worth noting that, you know, Moses did not see a base fulfillment of the promise as acceptable. And Moses also wanted to be as close to God as possible. He wanted God to be as close to the people as possible. And it wasn't, it wasn't just about the land to Moses and the abundance of the land and just becoming a, a nation and having a nice law. But I mean, it really was about being as close as possible with God. And I think that's something that, that they didn't, understand ever right, about Moses. Right, 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 right. They're always complaining. Okay, Moses is, uh, you bring this up, and I'm glad you did. Moses is upset that they won't have the chance 
to have God's presence with them. Right. And that's the kind of thing that he brings up as a violation of God's agreement. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that he's blaming God, but he's saying, this is what you promised and this is yeah. what I'm expecting. Yeah. The people are always complaining about, you said you were going to bring us into a land flowing with milk and honey, and you right. didn't do that. Right. Yeah. They are complaining about different things than he is. And I think that speaks about the difference in values. Yeah. Yep. That reminds me of uh, Philippians 3, uh, verse 8, I think it is. Um, and the only reason I can be so specific is I'd written that down already as a reference I wanted to to look at. But there's another thematic hard balance here. So Paul says, you know, more than that, I count all things to be lost and they're surpassing in view of their surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. You know, and I think there's a hard balance in in, in the Bible that is, I don't hear it talked about very much, but I think it's an incredible proof for the inspiration of the Bible that God is the God of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And he's the God of the kingdom and those who are in the kingdom of heaven in the New Testament. Um, but as much as God is the God of a, na- a nation or a group, he is more so the God of individuals. And Moses approaches God as an individual. Like Psalm sure. 1, uh, yeah. Psalm 1 starts, blessed is the man. And the Psalms, I think, really emphasizes that point that God is the God of a nation. He's the God of a group. But ultimately, God is the God of an individual. And God is working with the nation so that he can reach individuals. You think about later Rahab, for instance, an individual mm-hmm. who ends up saved in the midst of you know the Canaanite people. Um, you think about Ruth, who ends up being this one Moabite woman who ends up changing the course of history because of her faith coming into Israel. So again, you, you have God and this, this hard balance where God has to exercise justice for his nation while still proving that as much as he's working with his nation, he's even more intimate with individuals. And he has to stay consistent with these principles of his character, not only with the nation, but he needs to stay consistent with these principles with each individual. And that that is mind-blowing. And I think that's ultimately in John 17 when Jesus says, uh, you know, he's manifested God's name. Jesus is proof of how intimately involved and intimately focused God is on individuals was, was proven in Jesus, which I think is just mind blowing. And it is proven in Jesus. We know it's proven in Jesus because you mentioned just two names kind of out of the hat, right? You you mentioned both Ruth and Rahab and they are uh, two of the four women who are specifically referenced in Matthew chapter one's genealogy of the Messiah. So God being the God of individuals is underlined right out of the gate mm, when mm-hmm, you've got Matthew mm-hmm, chapter mm-hmm. one, giving the lineage yeah. of Jesus. Maybe part of Moses reaching out in this way is because you know, the Lord is saying in verse 17 and 33, uh, you know, I, I know you by name mm. and, and you know, you think about that from that standpoint. So good. He yeah. Knows, yes, yes, yes. How, how does he know mm. him by name? Well, yeah. he knows him by name because he's been faithful to him. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so the Lord sets up a situation where there is, there can be a closeness, there can be a covenant, and, which is interesting too because it's almost like in verse five, there's no way there could be a covenant. Um, 
you know, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. But I think, again, this is sort of the second time where Moses stands in the gap and uh, has sort of a, uh, you know, Christ type of uh, interaction here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because yeah. that's that's exactly what Jesus does for us. I mean, there's right. no... There's no way God can have any fellowship with us without Jesus, without what he's, without what he's done. Yeah. And I think that's the, the key thing with Exodus 34, 10, it's quoted in Micah seven verse 15, where Micah, uh, as a prophet is also begging God to fulfill his promises when it seems like on the people's part, there's it's just, it's over, you know? Cause I mean, the prophets, obviously they all lived in terrible times, you know, and, you know, they, they experience the conflict of trying to preach to people and nobody's going to listen. And these are God's people. These aren't Gentile people who should be listening. No, and, and you make a good point. You make a good point. These are people right. that we know from the very beginning that are obstinate and stiff necked people. Yeah. And it's, it's not like there was ever any illusions about that. Right. Yeah. I mean, he reiterates in Deuteronomy. It's not because you were the biggest. It's yeah. not because you're the most righteous. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. That's that. That's. I mean, it, it, there's some good ego check throughout the entirety of the law. Yeah. Yep. And of course, I think it's interesting how how backwards they had it by the time that you have Stephen um, using some of those same phrases. Right. Yeah. And and I think like that helps give context when God says. I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth nor among any nations. And it's like, well, God, you just judged Egypt with miracles that have never been heard of before. What are you talking about? And I think it's it's more so the idea of God's power to change hearts. You know, that God is going to work with this nation and he is going to fulfill every promise with these people and these obstinate, stiff-necked people, he is going to create a righteous nation through them. He is going to create children through them. And I think it helps give context when we read the narrative of the Bible, what kind of power we stand in awe of with God. You know, because um, something practical, you know, a lot of people I talk to um, want modern miracles of the Holy Spirit, like healing when people lay their hands on you and speaking in different languages and all that. And they just get very focused on that. And what that tells me, and this, this may sound bad, but what that tells me is they're just not very familiar with the Bible. <laughs> uh, because that's that's really not the expectation that God really sets. If you just If you just read through the narrative of Scripture, you get familiar with who God is. That's, that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for God to change hearts, and you're in awe of God's power to change hearts with his words. That's always the emphasis. Uh, I would say the same thing is present when people say that they want to see his presence. Mm, mm, Have you mm -hmm, not read mm -hmm. any of the passages where people saw his presence? They threw themselves Mm. on the ground and just about died. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or that, uh, I mean, you know, we could go on for a number of things, <laughs> you know, people thinking that, uh, you know, angels are nice little fluffy, fluffy cloud beings, <laughs> you know, right. Um, right. <clears throat> when Ezekiel is like, well, here's a, here's a being with like eyes all over it. that's moving constantly that has wings protruding out of every angle. And, <laughs> um, no, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, this is terrifying. Um, uh, but no, so, but that's, that's the thing to, to keep in mind, I think, is that a relationship with God, sort of as we've been discussing, a relationship with God requires 
some form of conformity to what he yeah uh expects yeah. and what he right. wants right yeah um and and how can i have that how can i be in that unless i know what he wants right how yeah. can i yeah. how can i have any kind of inkling of that and so but but you know there are some that might even consider you know well you know the land promise people get sort of up in arms about that because in Joshua it makes it clear that no it wasn't all the land they conquered right and so in their mind that makes God's promise to Abraham you know nothing but the reality is that okay the promise is not nothing i can promise things you know i can i can promise uh something to my son and say hey if you if you do this, then maybe you'll get this, you know, or something like that. Um, and as long as I fulfill my part of it, but I mean, if if you know the problem is if if he doesn't act upon that or if he doesn't fulfill those qualifications, basically, then that's not going to happen. You know. And uh, okay, yeah. sorry. No, go ahead. No, I, this is big because to me. I think that fundamental misunderstanding about God's promises is not only true in these people. It was true in the New Testament times when mm. you had people who were mm. unsure about God's promises to the Jewish people. Uh, and yeah. further, it's a misunderstanding of some of the modern readers who misunderstand what Romans is talking about. Right, right. And they're right. going to take passages like uh, God, uh, like thirty-three nineteen, God, I will be gracious to who I'll be gracious. And then they're going to read that in the wrong lens when it's right. referenced in Romans and they're going to come out the other end and be Calvinist. So, okay. <laughs> let's, let's back up here a little bit. This is not about God can choose this person to be saved and not that person to be saved. Right. That's not the context of Romans nine whatsoever. Yeah. Romans. Uh, it, if you're looking at the entirety of Romans, Romans nine through 11 is about how God was balancing both things at the same time. Yeah. That is, yep. he is being just and keeps his promises right. specifically to his nation. Okay. And uh, he is also making it so that faith is the delimiter for salvation. Right, right, right. How do you do yep. both? Yep. Romans 9 through 11. Yep. Yep. I think, I think the main point there is that God has control over grace. I mean, he gets to decide who gets it and who doesn't. Um, but it is not a, duck duck goose kind of scenario it, there is some system involved here uh and and he you know people people ask us these impossible questions okay what about what about a guy who's on his deathbed and just you know if he's got i think i saw on facebook just the other day that that uh, someone was asking about tips for baptism for a guy who basically has a breathing tube in his chest or something or a feeding tube excuse me and, uh, you know, how do you, how do you do this and, and, you know, safely and, uh, you know, so things like that, people try to create problems over now, this person that was, te that was posting, by the way, that he was honestly just asking for advice. Um, but you know, others they're, they're trying to look for some way out, uh, or some way to just say, okay, well, God, God's going to take care of it with his grace. I mean, you, you know, you, you hit that point, um, and the thing the, the the thing that you mentioned earlier uh, that that Moses is going to say in Deuteronomy, it sort of it sort of implies that there were other nations that were more righteous than they were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of interesting. Yeah. It's like okay, uh, you know, I wonder who those are, but we don't we don't have to know. 
because this is the story. This is what we're focusing on. This is what we need to know. Um, so, but, but even then, you know, God's not always going to reach out to those who are the most ready to embrace him. Um, you know, in fact, you know, why didn't Jesus, uh, why wasn't Jesus born in Rome in the first century or Greece and, and, you know, just talk to people in the, the, you know, great societies that could learn and think and read. Well, the problem is that they, they could learn and think and read in such a way that they would not have listened to him. Well, secondarily to that, I mean, God, this is, this goes back to exactly what he was saying in Romans nine through 11 in that God did put up with an obstinate nation for the reason of bringing out the Messiah through them, because that was his plan. Right. And so he didn't wipe them off the face of the earth. He did have mercy on them. He did continue to go with them. Why? To bring about the things that he said he would do. Right. And who were we to get to sit on this side of it and go, well, how come you didn't do it? Well, that's not my place. Right. Yeah. And I think Romans 9, 23 is such an incredible uh, statement, you know, because I think about if somebody who is very rich had invested, let's say, let's just say for the hypothetical, let's say Bill Gates ends up selling out his whole company, all the, all the wealth of his company, he withdraws it, you know, and then he finds some random no-name person and ends up going into their house and saying, Hey, I actually, you know, everything I've ever built, the empire I've built, all the wealth I've accumulated, I've actually been doing it specifically for someone just like you. And I want to help you now to be able to inherit all of these things that I've done. You know, and that person would just be like, uh, what? But it, when we realize that God could have wiped Israel out at any point, yeah, why, why was he being patient with them? Because God wants us now to recognize who he is and the riches of what he's offering us, the greatness of his promises, the riches of his forbearance, how reliable his mercies are, how, how true his promises are. And I think it also helps us understand the depth of our need, you know, that, that sin corrupts our minds so greatly, the price that God has to pay to give us assurance and to help us to have a, a rooted understanding of him and his love. God pays an astonishing price that costs time. It costs the souls that have been spent through that time that have not obeyed him. He's willing to make those sacrifices because of his love for us now, for people whom he adopts through Jesus. And that, I think it's one of the most amazing things about being familiar with the Old Testament is feeling the weight of the passing of time and recognizing that God is willing to pay those prices for me so that I can be redeemed. You know, you talked about familiarity and I think familiarity can be a two edged sword. Yeah. Yep. Uh, The familiarity thing with Moses, I I think has a second edge to it. He is familiar with God, but that also means that sometimes I think that he does things based on the Liberty. He feels like he can Mm -hmm, that are mm -hmm, unfortunate. mm -hmm. We talked about not too long. We talked about previously the the breaking of the tablets and the fact that the first tablets written by the finger of God and the second tablets are written by (laughs) Moses. Uh, uh, you know, there is a lessening there mm, of mm-hmm, what the mm-hmm. people were able to receive as far as that goes. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that the, that doesn't mean that God does not still continue to work with the people. So it's interesting to see that, you know, you've got Moses, you know, quote unquote familiarity, 
and some of the actions that he takes, but you still have God's goodness and grace continue to go with them. Yeah. The familiarity the people have with God's presence being with them, they make mistakes because they've got this, this God who protects them. They take it for granted at times that God is there to protect them. Yeah. And then, and then he has to work, work within that system. Yeah. So this is kind of a practical thing, but to me that shows the value of, the Old Testament and particularly the prophets. You know, one sure. time I was, I was reading, uh, I can't remember which which book it was, but it was one of the prophets where, you know, wrath was mentioned over and over and over again. And I remember like it's because it just struck me how often it's being repeated. And I know that in, in the time frame of Israel, this wasn't all in the same day. This was like years where these things were being said, but I'm able to read it fairly briefly and it's just wrath, right. wrath, 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 wrath. And I remember what, what, what crossed my mind was how much I needed that. Because of how easy it is to take God's promises and his wrath, how easy it is to take for granted when he does show so much abounding grace and abounding mercy. We need to read about the promises of God's wrath and the people who receive those promises so that we don't take God for granted. So I think that heightens the value of the Old Testament as well, is recognizing that seeing how God dealt with Israel in patience, but also in truth that he did punish them and he did destroy them. Uh, and multiple times he sent them famines, multiple times he sent armies against them. You know, he destroyed them nationally completely with Babylon. You know, when, when God said he would destroy them, he really did do that. And I think when we, when we read his threats in the old Testament, if our heart is open, it, it, it's very healthy to have the reality of his wrath while we also have the balance of understanding his mercy and how we've received his mercy scripture balances our view of God in such an incredibly good way. And, you know, and, 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 oh, go ahead, Stephen. Well, I was just going to say, and as you mentioned with God dealing with the individual, I mean, there's a sense where those things that, that happen can be individual. I mean, I think the way that, that God dealt with Pharaoh mm. was very, you know, yeah. focused and centered on him yeah. and his, his attitude and his actions and so, I, I, you know, we know that, that spiritually it's that way, that any way that I'm, I'm suffering for my sin, I mean, there, there's an aspect there where God is very likely looking at that from an individual standpoint and say, mm-hmm. okay, Stephen's done this, so he's going to need to suffer this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Well, okay, and this balance that we're talking about here, um, I think it's funny that we kind of come back to that because there, there is this discussion of God's balance in him, in him revealing his name and his nature to Moses, Mm -hmm. because he talks about the fact that he is not only the justice seeking God, but he is also the forgiving God who's full of compassion and truth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, since we're talking about, you know, major themes, uh, that quotation that he uses here, and I know we talked about this somewhat, um, when we read through it, that very quotation shows up in places like Numbers 14, mm-hmm. uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, that is the, the prayer of confession mm-hmm. when they're detailing the history of the, of the nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Psalm 86 quotes it directly, Psalm 103, Psalm 145. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joel 2.13 quotes this when talking about the people uh, should rend their hearts and not their garments mm-hmm. because of God's nature. Hmm. The idea that he still might relent because that is his nature to relent. Hmm. Jonah chapter four. Um, I love Jonah's quotation of it because it's so ironic. 
uh, Jonah's complaining about God when he quotes this. Mm, mm, Jonah's yeah, mad that God is compassionate. <laughs> it's the weirdest place. I mean, all yeah. of them, all of them are very positive, except for Jonah. Mm. Jonah's the only one who blames God for being God. Mm, mm, mm. And of course, and then it shows up in Nahum too. Uh, uh, Nahum chapter he says, one. I knew you would be this way. I knew you'd be this way mm. in order to forestall this. That's why I ran. I didn't want you to forget mm. these people. Mm. Jonah's a complex character. <laughs> but but it's interesting that this this bit, this short bit, in bear, we talked about it when we were reading it, this short bit that's, that's seemingly buried in the middle of, of Exodus becomes such a, an important handle that he has given us to understand who it is that we're dealing with. Right. His people come back to this over and over and over again. Mm. And I mean, over the entirety of their history, mm. they come back to this, mm-hmm. that this is his nature. This is his character. This is who you're dealing with. He and, not only, and, go on, Stephen. And verse, uh, you know, chapter 34, when he's saying, take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. I mean, it changes over time very quickly until to the point in Joshua, it's not, it's no longer, you know, just in case, make sure you don't do this. Joshua is basically more or less, you know, like, no, you're going to do this. It's, <laughs> this is going to happen. Like you can't, you can't, you know, and it's not a matter of saying like, this is divine appointment or something. That's not what I'm saying, but, but I am saying that the expectations change, uh, that, you know, just like Jonah is saying, I knew you would be this way. God is in a, so much of a better position to know ha- what Israel is going to be doing and, and how they're going to react typically. Yeah. And, uh, and so th- this is going to be the thorn in their side. This is going to be something that is going to, going to destroy them. Um, I think that's know, because their own actions. Yeah. I mean, you go to scripture to see what's real, you know, cause like, at the end of Joshua, you know, Joshua was insisting at that time that they already had idols. You know, he said, you got to choose who you're going to serve. And the people say, well, we'll serve God. And he said, well, t- put away your idols. You can't serve your idols and serve God. Put the idols away that are in your midst. And they say, no, we're going to serve God. And he says, okay, you're saying that, but you have idols. And they say, we will serve God. And he says, fine, you know what? Whatever. Me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You know, so they they weren't willing to be honest about the situation they were in. And Joshua, he saw the idols that they had and they just weren't willing to let them go. And that that just never went away, you know, throughout the entire period up to the Babylonian uh, captivity. You know, and, and again, that's a part of the balance is we read scripture and we find things that are difficult and uncomfortable. But God's confronting us with what is real because of his nature. I think too, we have to realize and just, just sort of, you know, again, an extension of what we're talking about here. Um, those today who are saying that Israel is God's chosen people, you know, physical Israel here on the earth and that, you know, the, the world will be blessed through Israel. And we're, you know, we, we may, some people even say we are blessed through Israel and, uh, there, there's a logic disconnect there because again, it gets back to, do you, do you read the Bible? I mean, do you, do you see what happens in there? 
do you see how these people are? Do you see they're a stiff necked people? Mm-hmm. Um, do you see, uh, you know, connecting to Steven, <laughs> you know, you're a stiff necked and rebellious people. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, Steven's, Steven's courage to be able to say that in front of the Sanhedrin. Oh, I mean, that's so, uh, direct and yeah. clear. He's such a baller. I, I mean, that is, <laughs> I mean, if, it's the ultimate mic drop moment. I love it so much. Yeah, it just all of a sudden it just shifts. You know, it's like a pleasant history lesson. Then all of a sudden, so <laughs> listen, guys, it's like well, it's it's like he just pulls the pin on every. I mean, he, like yeah, he's been yeah. setting up the proximity mines and he hits the button or something. <laughs> just yeah, sorry, yeah. I'm kind of an old school golden nine joke there. Yeah, but um, no, I Steve Stevens uh, a lot of fun, and of course it demonstrates that he understands all of these things and all of the things that come in between this portion of Exodus when he takes the people out of the land and, or takes the people out of, out of, out of Egypt and bring to bring them to the land and all the things that happen in the interim. He really understands the, the the scope of scripture and lays it out before them. And so like, like, like our Stephen just said, have, have you, have you, have you read the Bible? Mm, Do you you know what it says? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that really kind of hit me on this one and I and I I think I I intellectually know it's true. And it's something that that Bryant was talking about earlier. The Jesus Moses connection just hits me in the face every time. Mm. Not only do you have the intercessory work of Moses but you have the closeness to God work of Moses. Yeah. Right. Yep. Even down to things, um, the idea, the idea that Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights and mm-hmm. ate and drank nothing. The idea that, you know, we, we think about Jesus doing it and I've heard people say, well, you know, Jesus was able to do it because he's, you know, miraculous. No one could, you know, fast like that without dying. Well, Moses did it. Hmm. I mean, you can say you can say miraculous all you want. These were people who were absolutely connected to God. And Their focus I, was was clear. Absolutely. And and in the case of Moses, it is demonstrated that he was able to to remain close to God and it showed mm. that he was able to stay close to God. It showed on his face. Mm. Which I, I'm sure was a lot skinnier when he came down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe, um, uh, maybe this is a stretch, but I mean, I, I guess my question too is, so Moses writes on the tablets, um, and you, you know, comparison with Moses and Jesus, Moses, Moses was a writer. Yeah. Okay. To write, to write the Torah. Oh man. Um, what an undertaking. I mean, you know, and, and to recount from the beginning, the creation of the world, and this is what's important. This is what happened and how all this occurred. And this happened in this place. And of course, when you read through Genesis, you got to keep in mind the the audience because the places that Moses is, is pointing to and he's saying this happened in this area. Um, that's what he's telling them to them at that point, which is hundreds of years removed from when these actually actual events happened. Um, but then I think about that, the fact that he wrote, and then I think about the fact, okay, what did Jesus write? Jesus, we don't have any records of him leaving any records or writing anything. 
except obviously in uh, what is it chapter? Uh, hmm, what chapter is it? With talking the, about John eight. Yeah, that's what I. That's yeah. I'm looking at it right now. Why? Why can't I see this? Uh, it's near the beginning. Are you talking about when, okay. he, when he rides in the dirt? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. John yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's right in front of me. I'm sorry. Um, the pericope adultery. Yeah, John yeah. 8, 6. Yeah, yeah. But he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So that's the only time we see him writing. Of course, there's speculation as to what he's writing there. But, I, I you know, maybe, maybe this is not necessarily in the purview of our discussion here. But it is interesting that we compare Moses and Jesus, whereas there were sort of some differences in how they worked and did their thing. Um, but I don't know. I, I welcome you guys thoughts on that. Well, okay. They couldn't have Moses body hang around because it would have been an idol. Uh, we know later on that they keep Nehushtan. They keep the bronze serpent around as an idol. The idea um, Paul even says that he couldn't baptize people because they would have taken mm. pride in it. Mm. If Jesus wrote anything down, man, people would have obsessed over that so much that it, it would have been unhelpful. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Think about even the fake things people <laughs> claim to have that they oh, idolize, yeah. especially yeah, in the, right. the, the areas the, the, of the, Jerusalem the, and surrounding. The, the 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 shroud of Turin, the little the little piece yeah. of the cross that they sell, yeah, absolutely. Well, that you know that killed that conversation, didn't it? <laughs> no, um. I no, I make a, that's a great point. It's a great point. Uh, well, I mean, in the same sense, uh, you have people in the in the Bible who worship the Torah. Yeah, and and we'll say you know that's that's the important thing the the prophets the psalms who cares about that, um, and so I think that within itself shows that that people again I mean it's kind of similar to people saying just pay attention to the to the red letter you know to yeah. the red words yeah. you know don't worry about anything else right yeah we had some, we had some we, we the the red letter movement uh, was existing with the Samaritans before. <laughs> Uh, before it was a modern problem. Mm, absolutely. Well, um, do you guys want to move into application now? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. So one of the things that I think we need to sort of start start with is to consider that, you know, in in, in our in the fullness of considering what's going on in these passages we need to remember that if I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to be a part of spiritual Israel. Um, I'm actually supposed to be the part of the fulfillment of all these things. Um, all the things that the prophets say about Israel in its fullest glory, all the things that the New Testament writers say about the church and the kingdom in its fullest glory, that's that, that ought to reflect or at least be reflected in me and how I live my life, mm. which on the one hand makes it feel like there's this great standard that's been set. And how could I ever possibly live up to this, that standard? But at the same time, the fact that the people 
that God was putting up on this pedestal this time, uh, they didn't live up to that standard either. And, and, and I think there's a sense where that helps so much. I'm not saying that it helps us to think better about ourselves, but it helps us to understand that, you know, I'm going to mess up too. And there is grace there. There is a way to deal with these things. Um, but, but you continue on in that. Um, I guess, I guess the question for us is, you know, um, God is doing all these things for them, but he recognizes they're a stiff necked people. Um, how do we, how do we kind of work out this issue where, I mean, we're stiff necked too. There's no doubt about that. Um, uh, you know, where, where do we, where do we work out those differences to where we can live up to the standards that God has set for us. I think first Corinthians 10 is a great place to start. Hmm. We look at the example of their failures and go, okay, well, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. what, what mm-hmm. we need to do is work hard at not being like them. Mm-hmm. And so we don't need to get involved in things that are spiritually dangerous for us. Yeah. Uh, we don't need to fall into disbelief and disobedience. Like the Hebrew writer talks about, we need to make sure that today, today is the day that we hear his voice. Amen. And that we yeah. don't, we don't uh, get dissatisfied with what he's provided and ask for those things that test him. Um, no, we have, we have the entirety of their uh, history of failure, but at the same time, we also have Hebrews 11, which is the history of the faithful. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And you know, somebody best when you see how they respond to conflict or abuse. And that's the old Testament, you know, I mean, God's behind the scenes in quiet ways. It's the old Testament is just a narrative of God being abused and thrown away, being treated like garbage. Uh, you know, I mean, how much love does someone have for their spouse if their spouse is provoking them to anger every day and they can't they can't actually see that happening or hear it in the tone of their voice? You know, and, and so God, he tells the people, you're provoking me to anger. But those words are coming through a man <laughs> who probably doesn't look very impressive trying to get their attention and they can ignore him if they want to, which they, further, they did. Further though, furthermore, we know what the voice of God does to people. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You know, so God's making himself approachable. He's not acting on his anger. You know, so if, if, if Jesus' statement is true in John 17, verse three, when he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, you know, then, then to see God's character drawn out and brought to light, to see the depths of his heart come, come to our attention through the way that he interacted with an obstinate people. What an amazing thing. You know, we can know God so well. We can know him so confidently because we see him respond to the most um, provoking conflicts with Israel. The other aspect that I want to get into is, and again, this is sort of tied into what is going to happen, but Moses' close relationship with God. Um, number one, we shouldn't be scared or intimidated by having a close relationship with God. Uh, it shouldn't be something that uh, we we worry about. Well, why would he care about me? Um, and I think that is something that, that keeps people from, from obeying him. Mm. This fear of failure, this fear of like, how could I ever live up to this? Mm. Um, no one does. 
I mean, join the right. company. <laughs> right. I mean, and that's part of the, that's part of the switch that needs to turn in your mind. And I don't know how, you know, sometimes I feel like I don't really know how that switch is being turned, except that, you know, the scriptures tell us that faith is what really does that. And, uh, that that faith acted upon is what change, you know, what can change that life. Um, and there are passages too, that we could turn to that show that that faith comes from God. Mm-hmm. Moses's response to God in a sense links back to how God has impacted Moses's life mm-hmm. and how Moses chose to act in such a way. I do want to say something real quick about, uh, Jochebed and all this too. Uh, I don't think that she gets enough credit for who Moses is. Um, and maybe this is more speculation than anything, but I, I really think she had a distinct influence in his life. I'm not sure that Moses would have struck down the Egyptian, uh, you know, and, and tried to, uh, defend his people in that early time. Just not sure that would have happened without her influence. Well, um, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of funny that you, that you talk about this. Uh, she does hide him and it isn't, it is demonstrate. It is demonstrably an action of faith, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but then she is also his nursemaid when he's young. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miriam uh, helps arrange right. that situation. But Moses grows up the entirety of the time knowing he's a Hebrew. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, there's no, there's, there is no question. He knows he's a Hebrew. Yeah. The, the whole, the whole time he grows up and it seems that everybody else knows he's a Hebrew too. Uh, and <laughs> I remember when, when my kids were, were asking, uh, uh, you know, and I was glad to have a thoughtful question. Well, how did Pharaoh's daughter know he was a Hebrew? I'm like, well, he's a little baby boy. You could tell. And then like when the light went off in one of my kids' heads, they're like, oh, it's like, exactly. So (laughs) it's not like it's ever a secret. You can't keep being a Hebrew a secret uh, uh, in certain situations, you know? And so uh, there's, he knows from birth exactly who he is. He's not like everybody else. And so Jochebed absolutely sets him up in her faithfulness to be this person who's going to side with the slave people. And so she does get the ball rolling. I, I am struck by the irony that Moses does not go through with that himself, with his children in Midian. Hmm. Now, I don't know. I don't know the whole story about that, but God, God was going to kill him for it. So yeah, there was something lacking there. He, and it seems like I get the implication he was trying to just run away from his problems at Midian. It, I I, uh, I absolutely you know, I absolutely agree with you. Mm-hmm. I don't want to put words in Moses' mouth, but it just kind of comes across that way. Mm-hmm. I, no, absolutely, because mm-hmm. well, he was he was a because he was a failed deliverer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that he wanted he wanted to free his people at that time, but they, they even they they rejected him. Absolutely, they and did. so he runs away. Um, I think, and, 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 I think he's really just, he, he's cashed his chips in. Mm-hmm. I think he's done mm-hmm. at that point. He, in his mind, he's going to live out his life as a shepherd I'm, in Midian. I'm a shepherd in Midian. Now. That's yep. what I do. And, I, yeah. and of course it's at 80 that God says, okay, you ready to get to work now? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and again, that leads into this and, and, um, you know, 
that I, I can't imagine. Um, I mean, obviously Jacobet is long dead by this time, but um, you know, I can't imagine her not being proud of Moses with this, you know, in the, in the situation where he's in now. And I know, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult situation sometimes and he's having to deal with a stiff necked people. But there he is standing in the gap. There he is having this close relationship with God. Yeah. Um, and I think our, our our application really of that would be, you know, don't be afraid to be close to God. Don't be afraid of how you might be perceived when you are close to God. Um, the shining face, the shining visage, they don't, they don't, they're, they're afraid of that. They're concerned about that. And people will become concerned in our lives about our devotion to God. Mm. Uh, when, when you have to make a decision about fellowship, okay, and people don't understand your decision because mm-hmm. because they don't have the same viewpoint. They don't, you know, they don't understand the scriptures. I, I don't want to say they don't understand the scriptures like you do, like some snotty thing but it's a sense where where they they don't understand that fellowship with god is a thing to be treasured and it can't just be something that you just say oh yeah well this guy's okay just because i say so Mm -hmm. um you know that's going to be detestable to some people the thought that you have decided that you cannot have a regular relationship with this person that that it has to be something where okay Oh, we're, you want to get together and you want to, you know, you want to hang out. Okay. Well, we can't just hang out regularly. You know, there's some things in your life that need to change. And until you're ready to have a conversation about that, I don't really think that we need to act like everything's okay. Hmm. Um, that perception, I think, and maybe I'm stretching here, but I think about that perception and I'm not saying that when you make those hard decisions that your face is radiant and shining and you're just this, Oh, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm the great warrior. I am. Uh, no, Paul, Paul says it. He said, now Paul talks about the boldness of standing up for the truth. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you can argue with that. That's what Paul says. <laughs> yeah. He says, they, they don't like it, but I ain't going to stop saying it. Yeah. Well, but even then, even then, you know, in Second Corinthians, he's saying, you know, listen, <laughs> these people that are detracting against me, I mean, I, I'm nothing really, right? But at the same time, I'm I'm more eminent than any of the apostles, but I'm not gonna ah, I'm not gonna lean on that because I'm nothing, and so I, I don't know that that's what he's saying. <laughs> this is uh, give me your take, give me your okay. hot take. No, uh, the, I think that there was it's not a, a hot take. I'm just uh, joking. I know. I, I don't think that he was saying that he was above the other apostles. I think that what he is saying is that he was a, a legitimate apostle, while the people who were calling themselves super apostles uh, were not. But that's 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 right. Point. Right. No. 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 I, I I would agree with you. Okay. Cool. I was just I was just trying to quote the text. That's yeah. All. Okay. That's I, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, no, no, I, I get you totally. It, okay. it, he's he's setting himself on a le- plane, you know, on the same level, right? You know, he sets himself on the same level with Peter in Galatians, absolutely. Without um, and you know, so he came about by divine revelation, and then it's after all this time that you came to Peter. Um, but but that's the thing, you know, Moses, and I think part of the key to all this is what we what we're going to keep learning as this goes along is that Moses, he's the most humble man. Mm-hmm. You know, this is inspired writing, by the way, <laughs> Moses isn't just saying this about himself, but he's the most humble, humble man, uh, 
in these situations, uh, when these rebellions happen, he's going to be falling to the earth, you know, putting, uh, falling down before, before them yeah. with his face to the earth. Yeah. Um, you know what, when someone comes into a congregation and says, Hey, you know what, we're, we're going to be using instruments of music here. We need to get a piano in here. And, uh, you know, um, and if the majority of the congregation is going along with them, it's going to be hard for me to just kind of say, you know, just throw myself down before them. <laughs> There's going to be a part of me to say, listen, guys, you know, we need to be thinking about this. <laughs> God, please forgive them for this sin. Right. My first, my first thought is to, to petition God on their behalf. That's right. Mm. That's, yeah. gonna be, that's good. That's a, that's a tough conversation. <laughs> mm. But, but, but it, I think again, it goes back to his humility informs his relationship with God and his relationship with God informs his humility. Mm-hmm. And I, I hate to sound circular there, but I, I, you know, I think that's kind of the way this all works out. Mm-hmm. No, I think, that's a great point. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think I thought about it that way. You guys have anything application wise? After that slam dunk, it's hard to come back. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I think one, just one application for me is Lamentations 3. You know, how knowing God's character um, the, the, and that balance we were talking about, you know, yeah. how God's character is a anchoring point for chaos, grief, and losses in our life. Um, you know, in Lamentations 3, you know, he's expressing grief that God has very directly caused. So he says, I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. Uh, he says, you know, in dark places, he has made me dwell. Uh, you know, he made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. He has filled me with bitterness. He has broken my teeth with gravel. My soul has been rejected from peace. He even says in verse 18, you know, my strength is perished. So is my hope from the Lord. You know, so th- there's this, this anger and this wrath that he's acknowledging has come from God. And he's experiencing that. But then he says, my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind. Therefore, I hope the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease for his compassions never fail. They said a new- combination of loving kindness. And exactly. Compassion. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the earth could have shaken out of its orbit when Jeremiah said these things. I mean, it's like once these statements are said, I mean, it's over. You know, God, God has won forever. You know, the Messiah is going to come into Israel. Everything's going to be done. I mean, just you see these statements and and the amount of faith that's in this, you know, and he says, the Lord will not reject forever. If he causes grief, he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness, for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. So he's saying like when when there's when there's grief, when when you're experiencing something that relates to consequences for sin, he's saying God never allows it ever without also at the same time balancing a plan to exalt his compassions through it every time. And, and I love that, you know, and, and it just like the, the balance of him then saying, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways. And then with those who have destroyed Jerusalem, he says, you know, Oh Lord, you have seen my oppression, judge my case. So at one point he's saying, God, you've, you've, you've just destroyed me. And then within the same chapter, he's saying, but God, you've also seen my afflictions and you're going to judge these things and you are going to rescue us. You are going to save us according to your promises. And, and all of this is a meditation. He's a prophet, but 
through the writing of this chapter, he's not receiving some direct answer. He's meditating on the balance of God's character. He's gaining assurance in his own heart as he remembers the glory of God's work in the past. And it's like what we talked about, how a covenant is sustained by memory and initiated by commitment. He knows God's commitment. He understands what God has done. And so even in the deepest grief, God is still victorious in Jeremiah's heart. And I I just think Lamentations 3 shows us very practically what the product of trusting God's character looks like, especially in conflicts that we experience ourselves. Well, that and his very nature, the idea that he is at his core being faithful to covenants. Yeah. Covenant loyalty, I I think, is probably the best way. Yeah. Yeah, to translate to translate the idea of, of chesed. Um, mm-hmm. I know it's loving kindness in the New American, steadfast love in the ESV, mercy more often than not in the King James, uh, and it's a notoriously difficult word to translate. But I think um, covenant loyalty probably hits it on the head, uh, the purest, because it is about God acting toward us in accordance to our relationship. Right. Yep. 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 Every situation he is going to act toward us in accordance to our relationship. This goes back to what Stephen was saying about how uh, Moses character was influenced by his relationship with God and his relationship with God influenced his character. Yeah. Well, that's what God is desiring from all of us. Right. 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 When we understand his nature of covenant keeping and loyalty, then uh, we are expected to return to him a nature of covenant keeping and loyalty, not only toward yeah. him, but toward other people. Right. That is, there's that feedback loop. And, you know, Stephen apologized for being circular, but I think it's intentional. Yeah. That, that is yep. supposed to be the case. Yeah. So like Moses, like Jeremiah, like the prophets, we are to look at God's character and say, this is the way that I know that I need to be. Yeah. What I don't need to be is be like Jonah and say that's the way that God is, and I and I just don't like that. Yeah, yeah. Because we can see that Jonah does not maintain that character either. Yeah. I don't really have anything else. <laughs> what? <laughs> there <Yeah>. you go. <laughs> there you go. Do you guys have? Do you guys have anything else? No. Okay. You, well, you, here's, you wrapped it up for us, Stephen. That was yeah. amazing. Yeah. Here's here's the most well. No, no, no. Here's the most important thing. You ready to take it to the next level? Here we go. <laughs> you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That's. Crap. I mean, that's uh, that yikes. takes precedence over anything. As long as we don't do that, we'll be okay. I'm gonna. T- I'm gonna tell you what. I don't know if you know this, but this is the basis for the Jewish prohibition of getting of eating meat with uh, any dairy. Well, uh, yeah, I, as I understand it, this is why they wouldn't have like a chicken, egg, and cheese biscuit. Yeah. No, for real. They don't have you, you're using the part that came out, you know, of the mother with the mother itself. And well, just, well it, they're it, always it, getting the point of things, aren't they? Well, no, <laughs> I know it's kind of a rough thing, but when you extrapolate the law so far that it is un defined by the original text then you get places where well obviously what he is saying right now is you don't eat any meat and dairy together <laughs> wait what yeah what? 
That's well, not- yeah, and uh, in my reading of that too, it seems like a lot of people think this was to forbid pagan practices that may have been going on in Canaan. Well, I, have uh, to I think it's likely but, uh, it's likely to be the case, but but it, I think that when you are thinking about this sort of the the weirdness of that practice, like, I'm not saying that uh, Turducken is necessarily evil. But it is a really, really strange thing to do. When you think of, I mean, do you guys know what a turducken is? A turkey yeah, yeah. duck. Yeah. yeah, you put a duck inside a turkey, and you roast both of them. Well, no, it's it's three. It, right? it, it's it's, it's oh. a chicken inside of a duck inside of a turkey. Oh, okay. Well, turducken. That yeah. is weird. Uh, okay. But you know, a chicken, egg, and cheese biscuit is not the most normal I, thing on the earth. Don't you be talking about Chick Fil A like that, man? I'm just saying. <laughs> what? Okay, so ch- chicken, egg, and cheese base biscuit, notwithstanding, I think it's slightly closer to not weirder. But when you're trying to like <laughs> stuff animals with other animals and roast them all together, it's weird, man. It's kind of strange, and it might taste real good, but it's a little bit odd. And and I think that when you've got cultures who are into doing like weird religious things, messing with the life of animals, messing with the, the things that come out of animals. I'm, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a goat and I'm going to boil it in the milk of its mouth. That's a weird thing to do anyway. (laughs) That's just a really odd practice there, man. I mean, if somebody like came up to you at a barbecue and said, you know what I'm going to do? You'd be like, Bob, Bob, are you okay, man? Are you okay at home? And so I don't know how it developed, but the but the inherent sort of weirdness of it, God's like, man, don't get involved in that kind of stuff, man. <laughs> I, I I preached a lesson on this one time. <laughs> Stephen, was that after we talked about it? I feel like yeah, 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 yeah. We no, talked about it. And I was I, just like, no, yeah. I, gotta, I gotta hear you. You're the only person I know who's like turned into the skit on this. What'd you do? I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do a lesson on this. <laughs> um, really, kind of the way I pulled I pulled it was, um, and and maybe this was a stretch, but more or less, I was talking about using what God gives us in ways that he doesn't authorize. Okay. So that's kind of how, that's kind of how I applied it. Um, and, and that may be more of a loose application because it's difficult because we don't even know really exactly why this was commanded. And there's very little evidence that the people of Israel really knew exactly why this was commanded. Um, but it, you know, it's hard for us to know from, from our vantage point, but, I, I do think there <clears throat> there is a standard here in that sense, a truism where, you know, it, it, even in this verse, the first of the first fruits in your land uh, of the, of your land, you shall bring to the house of the Lord, your God. Yeah. Um, so there's a precedence here from like, you know, the special things belong to him. Uh, you don't get to decide for yourself, you know, the ways that you're going to use what God's given. Um, I, you know, and, and maybe that was a misapplication of this, but no, uh, I think that's a very good application. Yeah. What's meant for life needs to be used for life and not for death. Right. I remember our discussions about that and it was very, 
very useful for me at the time. <laughs> no, yeah. it's, no, that's a solid. That's a solid application. Yeah, I mean, because uh, it lines up with Romans seven, where it says the law, which was meant for life, instead resulted in death, not because God intended that, but because that's what sin produced. You know, yeah. and so every and think about Jesus. Jesus came into the world for life, and yet to many, uh, Jesus's coming caused death. You know, is that was that the point? I mean. Maybe by secondarily, you know, if someone's not willing to accept life, then it needs to be more evident where they are in death. But, you know, when God when God gives something, it's always intended first and foremost for life to preserve life and give life. And I think it gives context to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even in, in Genesis chapter two and three. You know, did God put that in the garden for Adam and Eve to fail and to push them to sin? No, God always gives and creates for the purpose of preserving and giving life. And when death comes out of it, it is beyond the purpose of God's primary purpose. Yeah, no, absolutely. And he put other regulations too on, on how they were to use the great gifts that they were given. Right. Uh, he specifically, he says, you know, when, if, if you're going to take eggs out of a nest, don't take the eggs and the bomb too. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yep. I mean, there's practical application to that too. Absolutely. The, yeah. the idea of overtaking and misusing the gifts that he's given. It's like little, it's like little practical parables. Yeah. You know, and I think like those things that seem so little, you know, it's kind of like when Paul in first Corinthians nine said, you know, is God really concerned about oxen? You know, what's really the point? <laughs> right. You know? a there. So it's like when you, when you see it through the lens of God's character, it, you realize it's much more than just what it, sounds like on the surface, just like the parable of the seed and the sower, you know, is, yeah. is that really all that Jesus meant is a lesson about some guy throwing seed everywhere? Well, no, I mean, it's, it's meant, it's meant to mean more when you understand what God is really going for, you know? Well, I think too, I mean, and, and maybe this is, <laughs> this is probably controversial right now, but uh, <laughs> you know, when we talk about the Lord's Supper and the assembly, there, there seems to be embedded in, and this is the, the, the recent issues that have come up with COVID-19 at the time of this recording have kind of informed this, that, uh, you know, people are thinking, oh, well, we're getting together with small groups. We can still do the Lord's Supper. Um, the problem with that is that the text doesn't seem to really show that or, mm-hmm. or, you know, bear that out. And so we're taking God's commands and, and I recognize, I understand there are consciences involved in this. People feel guilty about, well, we're, I'm not taking the Lord's supper. Something is like deeply wrong. I'm going to be judged by God. And I recognize that, but at the same time, you've got to realize the reasoning for that command and when that command is expected to be observed and the situations wherein we can conclude that that command is not able to be observed. Um, so, uh, you know, again, not necessarily to pull that up, but I, I think, you know, you're talking about looking at God's commands in just such a shallow way that you're just going to look at, at the, the end result of it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I understand if you guys don't want to comment on that, but. <laughs> and then there was silence. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 Not we don't want to get in trouble. Do we? No, no. <laughs> yeah. I, okay. Like I said, pretty controversial. Well, no, I I think that there is a truth to that we can misuse the gifts that God has given us. Let's let's take that same principle over to something that may be differently controversial. Uh, God instructed his saints to worship him in songs that we sing together. 
that doesn't mean that we need to turn it into some sort of fleshly um, exercise where we're filming all of these people with these holy faces turned up and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, uh, be speckled by the light of the, of all of these uh, stained glass windows and turn it into a, like a video production or, right, right. or do a flash mob in the middle of uh, an yeah. empty mall somewhere and record right, it. Right. Look how beautiful the thinging is. Look, that's not the point. Yeah. That's, that's, that's true. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. That's a, you're talking about personal pet peeves. I can get mine in there. No, I mean, that, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. What, what really is the purpose of what God, what God is saying? It's just so easy to, it's so easy to miss in so many different ways. Which again means that we need to have as close a relationship with him as possible. Right. That's, you know, that's we, we need to be begging things. God yeah. to show us his glory and show us his name. Yeah. And the way we do that is not just waiting for something supernatural to happen. Um, but actually in looking at the revealed mind and the will of, of his own character that he's recorded in the scriptures for us. That's right. You know, cause the, the, the key thing with, I think understanding scripture is humility and faith, you know, like I think it, 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 it not to open up another can of worms, but you know, the, the key to having a good understanding of God's will is not going to a Christian college or going to a Bible college, you know, and getting theologically informed, you know, the key thing is a humble and broken heart. And if, if you can see God for who he truly is, if you can see Jesus and walk with him for who he is and accept who he is and accept his words and make the sacrifices that he's calling you to make, if you just have a quiet and humble heart in that way, then you'll understand God's will far better than somebody with with a hardened heart who has a theology degree or who is a great YouTube preacher, you know, and has uh, lots of sermons that people herald or has written many books, you know, so, yeah. Sharp. (laughs) Well, uh, we certainly appreciate everyone listening and, uh, we hope that it's been beneficial for you. I know it's been beneficial for me. Um, and, uh, again, check out, uh, no, no, no. I know it's been beneficial for me and I appreciate you, Bryant, and appreciate you, Jeremy, for Mm -hmm. being along for this. Yeah. Thank you very much, Stephen, for all you do. Yep. Yep. Appreciate you guys. Next time, Lord willing, we will be getting into Exodus uh, chapter 35. Until then, we hope that you study well and be lost to God's glory.
The music used in this program is graciously provided by Symphonia. Symphonia is a nonprofit foundation whose purpose is to compose, publish, and promote hymns for congregational worship. Find out more at symphonia.com.